Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Great. Beginning in verse 14. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss, discussing among themselves with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. So there was once a man who went inside the bank, and he wanted some money. And the teller told him, if you will sign the check, I will be happy to give you some money. But for some reason, this man just would not do it. And and the teller told him, if you will not sign the check, I cannot give you money. And so the man, frustrated, walks across the street to another bank, and the same conversation takes place. He says he'd like to have some money. The teller says, you need to write me a check. He stands there with a blank look on his face. And this went on and on. And finally, the teller reached across the counter, grabbed him by the ears, banged his head on the counter three times. And the man then calmly took out a pen and wrote a check and signed his name to it. And the teller gave him some money. And so he returns to the first bank and said, they, across the bank, across the street, they gave me money. And the teller befuddled, befuddled said, well, how did that happen? And he said, simple, they explained it to me. So we laugh at a story like that, right? Not because it's so much as that it's absurd, but because really we know it's the truth. Because let's face it, I think we all are hard-hearted, or hard-headed anyway. You know, sometimes the truth, even though it's right there in front of us, sometimes it's just hard for us to understand. Sometimes it's right there, but we just don't see it. We just don't get it. Sometimes it just seems that we need to be hit over the head with the truth. And you know what? You, you know what I'm talking about. We've all been there when, when the truth is as plain as the nose on someone's face. And everyone else around us can see it except for us. I think that's especially when it comes to relationships. Sometimes we're just really, really dense. Right? We can be hard-headed when it comes to the truth, especially when it comes sometimes to matters of faith. And that's what we're going to see in the story here this morning. These 12 men have been with Jesus for now for about a year. And they have, they have heard him teach. They have seen him do the most incredible miracles. Right? And yet they are still struggling to comprehend what's, what was right before them. What, they're struggling to understand what, what's right there in their midst. And, and Jesus, as a result, in, right, in his humility, he becomes, I mean, excuse me, in his humanity, becomes frustrated 
Because these guys just don't get it. These men should be understanding the truth, but they just, it's not getting through. The truth just keeps going over their head. Which is the pattern I think we've seen this entire, you know, first part of the, of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus heals hundreds of people and casts out all kinds of demons, proving what Mark says that he is, the son of the living God. And he goes across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and they get caught up in a life-threatening storm, and Jesus' disciples wake him up in a panic, and he speaks a word, and, and it goes from just this horrible hurricane to instant calm. And they're completely shocked, and they, they say, what kind of person is this? They didn't understand. And then Jesus casts out a legion of demons out of a man, and then he raises a little girl from the dead in front of them. Right? And if that weren't enough, Jesus equips them and empowers all 12 of them to go out into the world and preach the gospel, and they themselves now have the power to heal and cast out demons as well, but they still don't get it. And then Jesus feeds 5,000 men and their families Right, with a few pieces of bread and some small fish. And then after that, Jesus walks on the water, causing great fear in these men. He calms another life-threatening storm. And once again, he's demonstrating his, his awesome power over creation. And then finally, they are beginning now to grasp, maybe a little bit, that indeed he is the Son of God. But they, but they still are struggling to understand what it means. Even after feeding 4,000 more families, or people and their families in the same manner as before, and there's this just huge abundance of food left over, they still struggle to fully grasp who Christ is. These men have, have, have been exposed right, to some incredible things, and, but, but they demonstrate that they are truly thick-headed. But I personally don't want to be too critical of them because I've been that way myself. This is what we're going to see in Mark chapter 8, by the way. Now, before we jump in here, let me just rem let's just remember where we are in this story. Jesus has just had another conversation, another confrontation with the Pharisees. He's had multiple confrontations with them. He keeps putting them in their place. He keeps shutting them down. And they keep coming back at him. Right? And they, also like the disciples, keep demonstrating that they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They have seen the miracles with their own eyes. They have, they have heard his teachings come out of his mouth. They've talked to all the witnesses that keep talking about the things he's doing. And they know that Christ has incredible power. They've witnessed it themselves. In fact, they can't deny it. But for some reason, they cannot, for the life of them, make the connection that Jesus is the promised Messiah that they're hoping for and waiting on. Their hearts are rock hard to the truth, and they are hostile to the message of hope. In fact, they're, they're already conspiring to put him to death. They've already made up their minds that he needs to die. And, and, and so Jesus then, he answers all of their objections... He's withstood all of their tests. The evidence is overwhelming, pointing to who he is. And they stubbornly hold on to their unbelief because they simply just refuse to believe. And when their objections no longer work, they challenge Christ to prove that he, he is who he claims to be by doing a sign. They want Jesus to perform one more miracle to, to, uh, to prove he is what he claimed to be. right? As if what he's done all this time isn't enough for, for them. And so Jesus knows that, that another miracle is not going to change anything. That he knows another miracle is, just, just, is, is not going to do anything to their hardened hearts. They would just come up with another excuse, right? They would come up with another excuse of why not to believe. And so Jesus, he just simply rebukes them. 
He turns his back on them and walks away from them, foreshadowing the judgment that's coming because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, the reason why that context, I think, is important to us here is this story is right next to the ne- this story we're in today. And what we see in both of these stories, as we look at them side by side, is both the Pharisees and the disciples exhibit a hardness of their hearts. Both groups struggle right, to see the truth that is right there before them. That's the connection between these two stories. Both the Pharisees and the disciples are, are exhibiting a hardness of heart, a spiritual blindness. Right? They both have been exposed to Jesus' teaching. They both have, have seen incredible miracles. They both have, have overwhelming uh, evidence proving who Christ is. They both struggle to grab a hold of and understand the truth that's right in front of them. Both of these groups do. I mean, how many times have we seen in the book of Mark where Christ asks his disciples, do you yet not understand? Do you still not understand? Do you still not see? Do you have little, you have no faith. You have little faith. Both of these groups struggle to see the truth in front of them, which I think should cause us then, as we look at this text this morning, to ask a really important fundamental question, and that is, what's the difference between the hardness of the Pharisee's heart and the hardness of the disciples' heart. Because there must be a difference, right? Because both of their hearts are experiencing hardness related to unbelief. They are both experiencing spiritual blindness because they cannot see what is right in front of them. Yet, as we know, most of the Pharisees that are with Jesus that he's dealing with, that he's been, he's been talking to, that group of people, we know that they are condemned and that they're not saved, that they are not believers, that they are outside of the kingdom. But we know that, that at least 11 of the 12 apostles are saved. We know that they are believers. Right? We know by their, by their history after Christ that they're believers. We know that they are in the kingdom. And so this is something we've, we've talked about a lot, as, as we've said many times before. There are really only two types of people in the world. There are people who believe and people who don't. And there are people who are in the kingdom and people who are outside the kingdom. There are those who are saved and belong to Christ, and there are those who are lost and don't. And the difference between those two, as we have gone over multiple times, is not evidence. It's not their religion it's not their family or their upbringing, right? And, it, and it's certainly not their intelligence level. The difference it, between these two groups of people has been the condition of their hearts. Those who don't believe have a hard, unchanged heart. And those who do believe have a, a changed heart that has been changed supernaturally by God. Hence the parable of the sower that we've looked at before. But in this text, we're going to see Jesus, he confronts his own apostles, who we know to be believers, right? and he's going to confront them about the hardness of their hearts. He's going to confront them about their spiritual blindness, not being able to perceive and see what's right in front of them, which again leaves us with the question, what's then the difference between the Pharisees and their hardness of heart, right? the ones that Jesus walked away with, and his apostles, who obviously are believers, now, obviously, again, there is a difference because we know at the fundamental level that salvation belongs to God. It is the work of God himself. We know, as we talked about from, from the early chapters of Mark, 
And we know that, that God is completely sovereign over all things, including salvation. And we know that the Pharisees continue to reject Christ because they are unregenerate and their hearts are as hard as stone. And they are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are spiritually dead. And because of that, they simply are unable to understand the spiritual truths in front of them. In fact, they have no ability and really no desire to, to grab a hold of the truth of Christ. On the other hand, we know that the apostles likewise were in the same position. Their hearts were just as hard, and, and, and they were dead in their, their sins and trespasses. But for some reason, God, according to the counsel of his will, changed their hearts. God called them. Right? Or at least 11 of them, as we, we've seen, because one of them is, isn't a believer. Judas ultimately proves that he isn't. But God changed their hard hearts and made them spiritually alive. And, and the results, rather than outright rejecting Christ like the Pharisees, they begin to follow him. They begin to gravitate towards him. And they repented and they put their faith in him and trust him, even though they don't fully understand who he was. They turned to him in faith because their hearts were changed. And so we, we know that there is a difference between the Pharisees and the apostles, which means there is absolutely a difference between the hardness of their respective hearts. When we talk about the hardness of the Pharisees' heart and the hardness that these apostles are experiencing in the moment, we know that there is a difference then. You see, it really comes down to two important theological terms. It's the difference between justification and sanctification. You see, what we need to understand is salvation is not simply a one-time event that happens to you, and then that's it. You don't simply just get saved, and, and there's nothing else to it. Right? Salvation is an ongoing process. Salvation is, is past, but it's also present, and it's also future. If you are in Christ, you have been saved. Without question. But you also are in the process of being saved. And that one day you will go, when you go home to be with Christ, you will be completely and totally and finally saved. You see, salvation is justification, glorification, and sanctification. Now, before you panic about writing that down, I'm going to go over that a little bit more in detail. All right? Justification is the one-time event in your life where you are saved from the penalty of your sin. That's what happens when you repent and believe and put your faith in Christ. It's a one-time, once-and-for-all event. The moment that you do that, you are justified instantly in the eyes of God. And, and the reason for that is because Christ died on the cross for your sins. And by putting your faith in Him, the penalty of your sin has paid for forever, and you are washed completely clean of your sins but more than that, Christ's righteous life that he lived, his, his perfection is then given to you. Right? It's, in theological terms, they say it's imputed to your account. It's, it's, it's credited to you. And so you are instantly made perfect before God. Now, it's not that you are perfect. It is that Christ is perfect and he grants you his righteousness. He gives it to you as a, as a free gift that you receive by faith. And just so you instantly, by faith, are permanently made right with God. You were justified. It's a legal term. right? You were declared by God to be righteous. And so justification is a past tense, one-time event that saves us from the penalty of sin, giving us 
giving you a permanent right standing with God. It is something that never changes. Does that make sense? Once you were justified, once you moved to faith in Christ, God does not renege. That is God's decision to justify you, and you're forever justified. Now, glorification is where, we, where you are permanently saved from the presence of sin. This is when, when all of God's redemptive work in your life is finished. Right? This is when, when you finally step off into eternity, when you die or when Christ returns, and you begin to live permanently in the presence of Christ forever. And in the presence of Christ, there is no presence of sin whatsoever, which means you will live forever in a state and in a place where there is no influence of, of sin at all. That, that sin does not influence you, it doesn't influence your thinking, it doesn't influence your body, it doesn't affect you in any way, it doesn't exist, it doesn't have any bearing on your life at all. That's heaven, right? There's no more pain, there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more trauma, no more betrayal, no more depression, no more anxiety, right? no more hatred, no more bitterness, no more war, no more fighting, no more anything that sin brings to our experience. This is the future salvation that we all long for. This is the hope that we are all waiting for. This is the hope that our, all of our hearts are set on, is that one day when Christ returns or when we die, that all things will be made new and right, and never again will sin have any bearing in our lives. This is the future salvation, and it belongs right now to those who are justified by faith in Christ. It is their salvation. It is their inheritance. It awaits them right now. It is not something in the abstract. It actually exists present day. The only difference is you can't have it now while we're here yet. Right? It's, it's yours. It belongs to you. But you can't have it here and now because we live here still in the fallen, broken world. So justification is the past tense, once and for all, salvation from the penalty of sin. And glorification is the future tense, salvation from the presence of sin. But what about now? What about the present tense? That's sanctification. Sanctification is the present tense, progressive, ongoing salvation that God brings into your life from the power of sin. Sanctification was where the Holy Spirit, at the moment of your conversion, at the moment that you're justified, when you believe He comes to live instantaneously inside of you. Right? As Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and He begins to progressively change you and shape you and make you more and more in the image of Christ. He begins changing your thoughts, changing your affections, what you once loved, like sin, you begin to hate. What you once hate, God, you begin to love. Changing your attitudes and even changing your actions as, as a result. The Holy Spirit slowly but steadily gives you power over the sin in your life. The things that you struggled with before, you don't struggle with anymore. And the things you're struggling with now, you'll progressively have more freedom to say no to those things. The Holy Spirit gives you freedom and, you know, and salvation from the power of sin in your life. That's sanctification. And this process, as has been said, begins when you are justified, when you get first get saved, but it continues all the way to the point of your glorification until you go home to be with Christ. It is a lifelong process. So as long as you are here on the earth, you are going through sanctification. And this right here, then, the reason why this is important, this explains... The already, but not yet, 
intention of salvation. We are already saved, but we're not completely there yet. This also explains why someone with a hard heart who hates God can be changed by God and be saved, but still at the same time, how that same person can still experience momentary hardness in their heart, right? And need the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to continue to change us, even though we've already been justified like the apostles. You see, the Pharisees, because of their hardness of their heart, never repented and exercised faith in Christ. They were never justified. But the apostles were. They had their hearts changed by the work of the Holy Spirit and they heard the gospel and they repented and they believed and put their trust in Christ which means they were justified permanently, saved forever from the penalty of sin but they, like us, lived on the earth and their new spiritual nature now exists with their old fleshly nature which means the Holy Spirit had a whole lot of work to do inside of them. Just like all of us. They needed a lot of growth. That's why we as Christians still battle our sinful nature. You ever wonder why that happens? Why can't God just make me perfect now? Wouldn't that just be easy? I'm set, Lord, I believe in you. Boom, I'm perfect. I don't have to make any more mistakes. Right? We as Christians battle our sinful nature. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. It is a reality, right? But we still have an old, old nature and our new spiritual nature and our old nature are at war with one another. As Paul tells us in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So I want you to know you're not neurotic. Okay? When you like, find yourself wanting to do the right thing and find yourself falling into sin, you wonder, what the heck's wrong with me? Am I just crazy? No, you're not. You're going through the process of sanctification. As Paul says in Romans, he paints a very clear picture of this. I mean, if, I mean this is a passage I've identified with multiple times in my life. And, and just listen to what he's saying. For I do not understand my own actions. How many of y'all understand that and, and, and relate to that, right? I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now that it is no longer I, but it is sin that dwells within me. Because guess what? Until we go home, we're, we're fighting that battle. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Doesn't that reflect the Christian life for just about everybody you know? We can all identify with this. Even though we are saved, we are still battling sin in our lives. We are still battling spiritual blindness. We're still battling our hearts trying to be hard. But praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit is at work within all of us, changing us, guiding us, and leading us progressively, giving us more and more power over the sin in our lives. That is sanctification. And so what we see in the text today is, is Christ's apostles, unlike the Pharisees, they have been saved. They are justified, but they're struggling with the hardness of heart, right? Because what they need is more sanctification. They need, they need God to continue to work on their hearts, right? 
And that's what we see in the text. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. And it says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Now, Jesus and his disciples are about to travel once again. In fact, they're in the boat, and they're already on the go. And one of the, one of the essential things that you needed in that time when you traveled was food. Why? Because the fact of the matter is there were not many markets and hamburger stands and, and, and taco trucks every so many miles when you go. I mean, we just went up to, uh, um, to Strathmore, which is Porterville. Right? We went through Bakersfield and up to 65. It was pretty like sparse. But, I mean, you could count on the fact that after so many miles, there was going to be a gas station. There was going to be a store. Right? And then when you get to the, those little small towns, there's always something. Right? You can always count, no matter just about wherever you go in the United States, you can always count that there's going to be food somewhere. Well, it's not like that in the first century. Food was a scarce and valuable and expensive resource. And it wasn't always easy to get a hold of. And so people oftentimes went days without eating, and, and so taking food on a, on a journey, you know, especially for unexpected events, was important. So this is not a trivial matter. Okay? I want to just kind of set that, you know, set that up. Right? These guys are not wasting their time on something that's pointless. This actually is an important thing for them to be talking about. Right? Somebody forgot the food. right? But, but as they were in the boat, they discovered for some reason they only had one loaf of bread between them, which means basically one tortilla for 12 of them, right? which obviously is not going to be enough. And then Jesus, during this conversation, leverages this discussion about bread to draw their attention to a more pressing matter, a more important issue, which, which is the danger that's posed by the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? which, which, which he says to them. He says, watch out, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, the, of, of Herod. Now, we, go, we look at that and go, what does that mean? That's kind of a weird expression. And there's a lot of scholarship, um, and there's been a lot of discussion and debate about what Jesus is referring to here, uh, because leaven in scriptures oftentimes is symbolizing uh, evil. When they talk about leaven, it often, oftentimes it's a symbol for evil and, and, and the contagious nature of evil, because leaven was a yeast, right? It was, it was a bacterial culture, in a sense. It was used to make bread right, that caused it to rise. And, and, and it's been said throughout the Bible, right, the expression is a little leaven, what? Leaven's the whole lump, right? A little bit infects the whole batch, right? Which, is, which in spiritual terms is, is evil. So, so in other words, if you introduce a little bit of evil into a culture or a group or a, a community... It can spread all over the place. And that's the picture of the insidious and infectious nature of sin and evil. Right? And Jesus is saying here, be careful of the evil that comes from the Pharisees and Herod because it can affect everything. It's contagious. Now, with respect to the Pharisees, many commentators, they look at Matthew's gospel as a basis for believing that Jesus is warning his apostles against the teachings of the Pharisees. Right? Which I think makes sense. Uh, given the context here, because the teaching of the Pharisees was obviously wrong and dangerous. It was nothing more than lifeless legalism dressed up as religion, and it leads to death, right? And, and it has spread like, uh, like leaven throughout all of Judea. It's affected all of Jewish life. 
Now, as for the leaven, the evil, you know, for Herod, that's a bit trickier to relate to. It's probably or maybe a reference to his wealth and his political power. And both of those things on their, on their own are seductive and dangerous and can lure people away. In fact, you know, Judas, what did he do? He sold out Christ for what? 30 pieces of silver. Now, exactly what Jesus is, is getting at here really isn't the point of the text here. The point of the text here is that the apostles are dealing with really an important physical but, but still worldly issue. But then Jesus begins to talk to them about a more important spiritual matter. And they just basically keep on talking about their need for bread, either that they're ignoring what Christ is saying, or they just simply don't understand what he's, what he's talking about. And that is the reason why Jesus rebukes them here. That's why he says to them, why are you discussing right, that you have no bread? Do you yet per- not perceive and understand? Do you not get it? And then he says to them, I really, I think, a warning that should like, get their attention, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts getting hard again? Have you eyes Having eyes, do you not see? Have you, having ears, do you not hear? You see, the, the, the issue here is the disciples were allowing their current reality to harden their hearts to the teaching of Christ. They're allowing the things of this world to harden their hearts to the things of heaven. This hardening of their hearts is now, understand, is not something that, that would cost them their eternity. Right? We know that. We know how salvation works. But it certainly was something that could disrupt their view and understanding of Christ. Because think about it. They were worried about food. But who was in their midst? Who was with them? The very bread of life. Right? Christ the Lord. And he has proven to be more than enough for them over and over again for both their physical and spiritual needs. And though it wasn't wrong for them to have concerns about physical things like food, right? they allowed that concern to blind them to the more important spiritual matters. Here's why this is important. This right here is the very thing that we as Christians in an affluent American culture tend to do. We allow the things of this world to blind us and get away in, in the way of the things of heaven. Tell me I'm wrong. How many Christians let their busy day-to-day lives get in the way of their regular daily time in the Word with God in prayer? How many, how many Christians are so busy they just never have time for the Creator? I mean, you have time for everything else, but you don't have enough time for the one who created the time for you to have. How many Christians spend more than 90% of their, their income on themselves and their families and their own hobbies and interests rather than giving to further the kingdom of God either through missions or through the preaching ministry or through missions of mercy like, like food and other things? How many Christians or people who profess to be Christians spend all of their Sundays shuttling their kids around to go to athletic competitions to win a trophy that'll gather dust and fade away? How many parents 
allow TV and the Xbox and social media to get in the way of them doing family devotions and discipling their own kids? How many people allow the love for the things of this world to get in the way of them truly selling out for Christ? Whether it's their hobbies or sports or careers or relationships or, or just simply their desire to not be different than everyone else and be singled out as weird. How many people are so focused on just getting by or, or getting ahead that they never think about God's will for their life and becoming the, the effective minister of the gospel that God is calling all of us to be? Work, relationships, hobbies, careers, school, material possessions, food, jobs, transportation, entertainment, retirements. These are all things that have places in our lives. Every single one of them has a place in our lives. They all are good in their proper context and in the proper proportion in our lives. But church, hear me on this. These are also the things that blind us to the things that Christ is trying to show us. They're the things that are dulling our ability to hear his voice. They are the things that, are, that, that, that we allow to get in the way. They're the things that are hardening our hearts to God's truth. Now again, I want to, I want to be really clear here. Okay, If you have been saved, and you have really repented and believed the gospel, right, you can't have your heart hardened to the point of spiritual death. But man, that, your heart can get so dry and hardened that the soil of your heart gets, gets so hard that it really impacts and it influences your relationship that you have with Christ in a negative way. See, when I was a kid, I, I, lived, on a, I lived near farms. And what I mean by near farms, like my nearest neighbor is a mile and a half away, and there are farms all the way around me. Right? And I was always amazed every year when they would come and prepare the soil again. And it just amazed me how many how many different pieces of equipment they needed to prepare the soil, right? You had the disc, right? You know what the disc is, right? It's like a, it's, it's a series of heavy discs all on this thing that they pull, and it tears the ground up. It, it, it turns it up. It, it, it tills the soil, right? And it makes it beautiful and it's soft, right? Well, then, then, then there was the, the, the thing that actually would, would create rows, Right? It would like form and shape these rows and make these nice level tops so they could actually plant things. But it was places for, for the, so they could irrigate the water was the rows. Right? And, and one of the things that amazed me about the way soil worked was after several weeks of them tilling the soil and forming the rows, the dirt would begin to dry out and the dirt would become hard enough that you could actually walk on top of the rows. Now, a few weeks before, if you tried that, you would just sink up to your ankles because the, the soil was so soft. But... But, the, but, but the, the, the soil would begin to get hard, right? And understand, now the soil wasn't like impervious like concrete or rock, right? Because if you walked on it, it was fine, but if you began to jump on it, then you could break through that, that surface and sink in, right? That's, that's kind of the way our hearts can be. God comes into our lives supernaturally, and he, he tills the soil of our hearts, transforming the, 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 the rock-hard surface of our heart into fertile soil, and then, then the seed of the gospel falls on our hearts, and we receive it, and, and it grows up into our lives and bears the fruit of our salvation. But then over time, as we're following God, right, life just gets in the way. We become distracted by the things of this world. They're not all bad things, but even good things. But we, we begin to lose focus on the things that God is doing. 
And slowly our hearts begin to dry out and the soil begins to get stiffer in the seed then of God's word that we need to grow you know, and, and mature. That doesn't really penetrate. It just kind of sits there. That's the issue here. Their hearts are being hardened. hardened, right? Not by bad things, but just by just regular everyday physical concerns. And she just said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Right? You ha- do you not yet perceive, do you not understand who you're with? Are your hearts hardened? Again, not like stone, but like hard soil. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Are you so distracted by the mundane and, and, and the, the, the typical that you, that you can't even understand the spiritual of my word? That's the question I think that we need to ask ourselves as Christians. Is my heart growing hard here? Am I just being blind to what God is trying to get me to do? Is my hearing growing dull you know, to God's life-giving instruction? Have I allowed the noise of this world to drown out the voice of God in my life? And I want you to know, like, this is not a question I'm just asking you. This is a question I've asked myself multiple times. I, I ask it pretty regularly, in fact. And, and I want you to know there are times I can actually say yes. There, that there were things, there have been things, and continue to be things that, that at times get in the way right, in my life. Things that consume so much of my life that I just grow dull in my relationship with Christ. That's why I've made a point over the past few years to remove personally several things that I have been involved with. Several even good things. Right? There was a point in my life that I was not only a husband, dad, and a pastor, which by the way is plenty to keep anyone busy. Right? Right? I was also a full-time college student, a, a school board member, president of the school board, vice president of the Chamber of Commerce, little league coach, youth football coach, president of the Youth Football League, member of the Boron Kids Outreach Program. I was also the youth pastor, chairman of the board of the Boron Religious Cooperative. In addition to that, I volunteered for just about everything that people had going on. You know, anytime somebody needed some help, I was trying to help. And, and, and that didn't even touch the social media distractions, right? Not to mention the ever-present technology that's in my pocket or in your pockets that buzz and beep and, you know, grab, ask, beg for your attention, letting you know you have 150 spam emails, you know, maybe three retweets and eight post likes and some new Instagram follower you think maybe might just be you know, a fake account. In that context, I've asked myself so many times, right, am I so distracted by the world that I'm becoming numb to the Word of God? Is my heart growing hard to His presence because of the sheer busyness of my own life? And the answer has been multiple times, is yes. And, and in light of that, I've had to make, make a point to systematically remove things out of my life some of the things were good, like I said. Some of the things I've enjoyed doing. Right? Things that have been rewarding in their own way. There are things I've even believed that, that I've, I've been able to contribute to make a difference. But I, I had to give them up because they were getting in the way of my relationship with, with Christ and my ability to know his will for my life right? and his mission for my life. And I, was grow, and I was growing more focused on worldly things and less on the one good thing, which is God. Just like these men. Jesus didn't be, now understand, he didn't begrudge them for thinking about their needs. Right? 
He didn't begrudge them for, need, for thinking about food for the journey. He was rebuking them because of their worldly, you know, that worldly need was getting in the way. That was the problem. Is they were so focused on that that they couldn't see the greater need, which was the word of Christ. And, and, and right, it's easy for us to fall into. It's easy to allow the everyday things of our life to overwhelm us and to consume us where, where our awareness of the things of God grows dim and our hearts begin to grow harder. So Christ diagnoses for us what the problem is. That's what we see here, which is the slow, silent, but steady hardening of our hearts and the dulling of our senses by the things of the world toward God. But then he also gives us a solution. And I want you to see, it's really subtle. Jesus asked, And do you not remember? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you yet not understand? What are you so concerned about that you can't focus on what I'm telling you? Don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember what I can do? Don't you remember that I am the bread of life? Don't you remember that I am more than enough for your every need? Don't you remember that your greatest need isn't food? Your greatest need is me. Don't you remember? Church family... The Bible is full of practical applications and how we can follow Christ, right? But there is not many <laughs> that are more practical and more effective and more important this, than this one here. If we are to protect our hearts from growing hard to the things of God and, and our sight from growing dim and our spiritual ears from growing deaf, if we're to prevent that that we are not sensitive to his word in the presence, if we're to prevent that, what we need to do is we need to continually remember. We need to remember. Because what happens when you get distracted? You're not remembering. Your mind is set on some other things. We need to remember and set our mind on the things of God. What we need to understand is that the Christian life is not lived out there. What's out there is the byproduct of the Christian life. You understand that? How you act and behave is a byproduct of the Christian life. The Christian life is not lived out there. The Christian life is, is lived in here. And in here. That's why Paul says the things he does. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, how do you do that? Well, he tells you. He says, Set your minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we saw it this morning, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed made new, metamorphosis, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You remember. We must remember. Be mindful and remember. Well, what do we need to remember? 
Well, we need to remember primarily who God is. That's the foundation of all of our theology. That's the foundation of all that we understand. That's the foundation of our worldview. We need to remember who God is. He is the holy and righteous and just creator of the universe. He is altogether perfect and lovely and glorious. And He is our greatest treasure. We must always keep in view and remember who He is. He is the the triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is glorious. He is radiant. He He is awesome. He is transcendent which means that he is bigger than and outside of the universe. right? But he is also eminent, which means he is inside and ever-present in every part of the universe. He's more than we can possibly understand, but he's close enough to be our friend. We need to remember who God is and bask in his glory every day. We need to look at creation and see that it speaks the truth about who He is. We need to remember continually, remind ourselves continually who God is. We lose sight of that. Everything else doesn't make any sense. We also need to remember then, in light of who He is, who we are. We are God's creation. The crowning achievement of His creation, made in the image of God ourselves, And because of that, we have intrinsic worth. Every single person you come in contact with, by the way, has intrinsic worth. Every person that you see on the street, whether they are wealthy or homeless, has intrinsic value simply because they are made in the image of God. But lest we think too highly of ourselves, we need to also remember we are fallen, broken sinners. And we are not good people who make a few mistakes. We are totally depraved people who only do the good that we do by the grace of God that restrains us from doing all the bad that we want to do at times. And in light of that, we are rebels then against this holy and righteous God. And because of that, he owes us nothing at all but his judgment. We need to remember who we are. But then we also need to remember, in light of that what he has done. God knowing that we are all doomed in our sin and have no hope of our own because of his love for us and because of his grace for us according to the counsel of his own will decided in eternity past that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come to the earth, live the perfect life that you couldn't live, die on the cross to pay a penalty that you couldn't pay so that you could be set free from your sin. And by repentance and faith, Jesus takes away your sin and gives you in return his righteousness so we now are forever permanently reconciled into the family of the living God. And then Christ rose from the dead three days later proving that this isn't just some religious story, but a historical reality that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he is the hope of the entire world. That's what we need to remember. And the way that we remember those things, I want to give you just four practical things. The way we remember those things and continue to till the soil of our hearts is number one is we need to read the Word. I know. Nothing new under the sun. But we need to read the Word. You've got to get the Word in you. You understand? You will never 
be in a position to fully understand who God is. You will never fully understand His will for your life. You will never fully understand what God is calling to you and the hope that He has for you. You won't fully grasp those things. You might be saved, but you will never fully understand until you get this word in you. And there's no other way to do it except to read it or listen to it. But not just read it, study it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Process it. Make it the cornerstone of your life. This is the reason why this is our authority for life and faith. It's God's breath, as we talked about. It is his theanustos. It is his word to us. We need to read the word. Second, this one is probably the most helpful to me, is we need to rehearse the gospel Brothers and sisters, you need to preach the gospel to yourselves. Because if, if there's a critic in your life, it's y'all. It's you. You need to remind yourself over and over again, when you fall down on your face, the truth of the gospel. I talked to a young man. I, want to hear, I, want you, I talked to a young man who's going through some very difficult stuff. And, and I, was, I was telling him, about the gospel and tell him he needs to put his faith in Christ. And he says to me, he goes, I've been struggling to do that because I don't think I can commit to that lifestyle. I go, what are you talking about? I just don't think I can do that. I said, that's the point. You can't do it. You will never be able to do it. It's not about what you are going to do for God. The gospel is what he's already done for you, and you reminding yourself of that, and you living in that, and you walking in that, and when you fall down on your face, that you don't think, oh, I need to, I need to do, get a checklist and do better. I need to turn to God and say, I need you to change my heart and help me. I can't do it. You know what he said to me? I never heard that before. I mean, he's been in church ever since he was a little kid. I'm like, you've never heard that before? He goes, I've never, ever heard that before. What he's been hearing is legalism. You need to do. You need to do. No. Right? Brothers and sisters, you need to preach yourself the gospel. Right? The gospel is, is that you couldn't do it. You can't do it. You won't ever be able to do it. Right? So turn to Christ because he's done it. And allow him to work in your heart. And when you fall down on your face, you don't wallow in your sin looking for a way to try to make yourself better. You turn to him and you hold on to him and say, Christ, I have nothing but you. I need you to change my heart. I need for you to transform me into something new because I can't. It is not within me. I don't have the ability. I'm just like Paul. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And things I know I shouldn't be doing, right? Or the things I know I should be doing, I won't do. You have to change me, God. And I'm depending on you. That's the gospel. Is we're totally, 100% putting ourselves and our trust on him. That's the thing that we must do continually. That's the thing we must remember. Third... Whew. And remind yourself of God's grace. To say God is good is just a stupid understatement. Right? The fact that you woke up this morning was an undeserved gift that, that God had give, given to you by His grace. The next breath that you're going to take is you, know, you stole it from Him. Right? Now you say that you're borrowing it, but like if you, you know, Borrow something that you're never going to get back. That's stealing. I mean, but. so the breath that you you take is is by God's hand. He is good to you. No matter how bad your life is, no matter what's going sideways, no matter how many troubles you have, the fact of the matter is, is you have more than your share of things to look up to heaven and say, Lord, thank you. 
Thank you for the food that I have to eat. Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for the life of my family. Thank you that I live in a country where I can profess your name out loud. Thank you for the fact that, you know, that the gasoline's not $20 a gallon, right? Thank you for the fact that I have, you know, you have clothes. I mean, you have more than your share of reasons to, re- to remind yourself of his grace in your life. And he pours out that general grace for everyone. But then he gives you the special grace of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So read the word, rehearse the gospel, remind yourself of grace, and then repent. When you fall down, repent and continue to believe the gospel. Now repentance is more than just simply turning away from sin. Repentance at its core is the idea of changing your mind. It's literally changing your mind. We allow God to change our mind about sin and and, and set our mind towards Him. We continue when we get distracted. We're like, there's so much going on. Lord, I repent. My thoughts are on you again. Lord, I got this much to work. Lord, I'm trusting in you for my life. Repentance isn't just, okay, I need to white knuckle it and not do bad things. Repentance is a continual posture towards God where we continually reorient ourselves to Him which means repentance is an ongoing daily thing. The problems that Jesus was dealing with with these apostles was their hardness of heart wasn't soul-threatening, but it was certainly relationship-dampening. Every single one of you, God has paid an unimaginable price for you to be set free and he calls you to walk in an open relationship with him where there is no veil. And he calls you to not allow this, the mundane things of life to get in the way of that. Should you be concerned about food? Yes. Should you be concerned about your bills? Yeah. Pay them bills. Right? Should, should you be concerned that you know, maybe like, you know, the economy could change? Those are things that we should think about. But nothing... Hear me, churchmen, nothing in the world should get in the way of the hope that you are holding on to in Jesus Christ. Nothing should get in the way of the fact that he has called you his children and he's called you to be on mission for him to share the hope of Christ with the rest of the world. Nothing should get in the way of that. Let me pray for you. Father, you're grace and your glory moves my heart to worship into tears. And Father, I pray that it would do the same for this church family. That Father, that we would lay down the things of this world that distract us. As the song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look into his glorious face. That the things of this world would grow strange and dim in the light of his glorious grace. Father, let that be the prayer of our hearts, Lord. Let that be our motivation. That yes, Lord, that, that the things of this world will draw our attention, but that we would never take our eyes off of you. Like Peter stepping out of the boat, Lord, as long as his eyes were on you, Father, he could walk on the water. But the moment his eyes became 
distracted by the conditions around him, he began to sink. But praise the Lord that he, that he, he knew smart enough to cry out, Lord, save me. Father, make us a people, Lord, who are just completely sold out for you. And that we would remember daily who you are and what you're doing and what you've done. We praise you and we glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.